0: Honestly, the first season, we're just trying to do a series that doesn't suck.
1: You probably don't know their voices or maybe even their names. We were never writing for America. We were just writing
2: for ourselves. We were like, what's a show we would watch?
1: But I'm betting that you've heard of the show that these two friends, Marta Kaufman and David Crane, created. Friends.
2: If you try to write to please other people or what you imagine
1: other people will like, you're doomed. Welcome to the latest episode of Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. This is a podcast all about the journey, the ups and downs on the road to professional fulfillment and success. It's hard to calculate the international popularity of the TV show Friends during the original run of 10 seasons and all of the years of reruns ever since. The show put Marta and David on the map for good. The journey getting to Friends was long, with plenty of wins, but also some lean years, times when their eventual global success was by no means guaranteed. But there was always talent, tons of talent, apparent to anyone who met them, as I did in the late 70s. That's around the time that they met as students at Brandeis University, just outside of Boston, where our story begins.
0: We were in a class together. We were also in a production of Kamino Real, where um, I played a whore and David played a street urchin. And that was the beginning of A Beautiful Friendship.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we just sort of took that and built on it. And there was a like an extracurricular theater group. And they asked Marta if she'd direct a production of Godspell. And she said to me, if I did it, would you be in it? And I had just made the decision that I was not an actor. I'd finally come to that really smart realization. So I said, no, but I'll direct it with you because I wanted to figure out what else I could do. And so together, not knowing each other very well, we directed a production of Godspell that was life-changing in that we met a group of friends who became literally friends of ours for life. And also uh, we realized how much we enjoyed working together.
1: How about the leap from working together, direct co-directing a show to maybe we should try writing something?
0: you know it was a pretty easy leap because first of all there weren't a lot of opportunities for undergraduates to act so we decided we were we would write something that undergraduates could act in and we decided we would make it a musical and the first thing we wrote together was this incredibly gut wrenching you know what you go through when you're in college and you're at that age and everything hurts and you know it's all painful and gloomy and blue and then after that we continued to write together, and ultimately wrote personals.
1: But before that, so when you write that show, that show, Waiting yes. for the Feeling, that show wins a national award. It so
2: does. It was originally called, of all things, Foundation of Feathers, to give you just a sense of how pretentious the whole thing was. And
1: we wrote and that it. that didn't catch on, that title?
2: <laughs> no, and we wrote it with uh, a guy named Seth Friedman, And our friend who you also know, Billy Dreskin, did the music. And uh, it was, as Marta said, about angst and being in college and everything we were going through. But we did it at Brandeis, which and I have to say, kind of I don't know whether gutsy or foolhardy, because when we did it at school, we booked the theater space and then said, all right, now we need to write something. (laughs) So we we really did just kind of throw ourselves. I I think as we talk about our career, you'll find out we we've spent our lives throwing ourselves forward and then figuring out how we're going to do this. So we booked a theater space and then wrote it. And it turned out it actually came out well and we did it regionally. And then uh, it was part of this thing called the American College Theater Festival. And it ended up going to the Kennedy Center in Washington as part of
1: this college festival. So when you're writing it, do you have some notion, I think we got something here, or is it all kind of a crapshoot?
0: You never know that. You really, you never know if you've got something. You never know if it's going to speak to people. You know, you might think that you might be proud of the work, but it still doesn't mean you've got something.
2: But, you we. this is literally... The first thing we've ever written, it's not like, well, I used to write things in high school. No, this is the so to to the hubris of, hey, I think we've got something not even close. We were just, gee, I hope we don't absolutely embarrass ourselves.
0: Um, We we did not. We did not embarrass ourselves.
1: What is that like? You're in college. You've written a show. And as I understand it, also, it's beaten out other shows that are not student written shows. Um, that seems you know, like pretty heady stuff.
0: It's very surreal when something happens beyond your expectations and you don't always know how to process that. And what I remember from it is being just excited and terrified and all of the things, all the feelings, you know, it was all the feelings. We're waiting for all the feelings. <laughs> that That's what I remember from it. and And also being incredibly proud to be part of it
2: and also it was the beginning and it took a long time for this to happen of going oh so writing maybe this is interesting i mean <laughs> I, I never had occurred to me up till that point that that's where my life would go i mean i somehow you know i would in high school i was in the plays and so you think oh i'll be an actor which is insane and then midway through college deciding realizing oh my god i'm not very good at this And the idea of something else presenting itself
1: that wasn't just being a lawyer because your parents would like you to be a lawyer. Obviously, you've gotten some success. This show has won a national award and it played at the Kennedy Center. And then you write another show. Does the discussion with your family, is it an ongoing, look, this is what I'm going to do, or are we not getting to that discussion just yet?
0: You know, the discussion was let's do another one. Let's do another thing together. Let's write another musical. And 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 truthfully for me, I had a high school teacher, an AP English teacher, who on a paper of mine had written that I was the least perceptive student she'd ever had and I'd never be a writer. So I was working with some of that. <laughs> and also
2: Marta, at that point, Marta still, you wanted to be an actor. You were still pursuing that. Yeah. So Marta goes off to New York to become an actor. I'm still, I have one more year at Brandeis, and then I spent the year after we graduated, and we're still doing this second show, this show called Personals, uh, a lot of the other people involved with it w- were a year behind me. So I sort of hung around in a sad way for another year so it wasn't really until i would say 1980 when we're both finally in new york didn't personals also win an award yes yeah it it, it was the same american college theater festival we entered it again amazingly it also seems to do well we end up back at the kennedy center like oh this again
0: Uh, (laughs) And and then we were invited to take it on a uso tour
1: Yeah, I was going to get to that. The notion of people graduating college and then going on a trip to Europe, it's been done. I I didn't do it, but I heard it's been done. But not too many people make that trip a tour, a USO tour. So please tell me one or two or a thousand stories from the USO tour of personals, correct?
0: Yes, it was personals. Well, first of all, we decided if our show was going to Europe, we're going with it and we were in it.
2: Yes, as it, because originally we weren't in the thing, but we're like, well, we're not going to just wave goodbye as it goes to Europe. We're, we're Suddenly we had parts in it. This is a, 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 an amazing life experience. I want part of that. Uh-huh. Um, and by and the way. It
0: was an amazing life experience. It, it really was. was. It, everything from you know, having to travel to Europe to meet much of America.
2: We That's were on it. army bases. We didn't see that much of Europe. That was the great irony of it. We, were, we spent 90% of the time on huge army bases, meeting America.
0: There were some small army bases where they would say to us, don't ask what we do here, just know the ball fields glow at night.
2: <laughs> there was still like, we were in West Germany, and you're standing right on the border in a guard tower, looking over at the East German guard tower, the, the the whole experience as a life experience was fantastic. As a theater experience, it was a I don't know how they managed to book us because this is a play that's it's a review about being single in New York. It was so not the kind of material it was. It had a lot of angst and it had a lot of, you know, what it is to be lonely. And it was just like, no, this is this is a USO tour like right. Bob Hope and the girls. Right. And, very quickly, I think we realized we cut anything heavy. We just like anything with like broad comedy or send the girls out. Just, you know, just give them the girls.
0: Yeah, we played in the only American prison in Europe and we did two shows there. And the first show went pretty well. I mean, we were all a little nervous about it and it was kind of weird. And it's also strange because. A lot of people in the military haven't spent a lot of time around theater, so they would answer our questions <laughs> that we asked on stage. Um, the second show that we did there, the audience was annoying and loud and sort of yelling at us, and they weren't behaving. We found out later that the second audience had already been sentenced. The first audience hadn't yet, so they were on good behavior.
1: So you both end up in New York. in It's the early 80s. And you've had this success in college, these two shows that have won national awards and played at the Kennedy Center, about as big as you can get for a college show. And so what's the feeling in New York in the early 80s? Is it this is definitely going to happen? We are doing this. This is happening. Or is there any element of doubt of can we really do this?
0: Well, there's I, I believe sheer terror. <laughs> um, yeah. when it comes to you don't know you know we're and we're all working our day jobs and and in law offices and pet stores and and you know all kinds of restaurants and
1: yeah i was selling toys. things over the phone yes rumor has it they were ink products you were selling over the yes,
0: phone. yes i sold
2: toner over the phone i'm i'm not proud of that chapter it was borderline legal. I'm working for this company on 23rd Street in a loft. And you got the feeling that literally everything could be cleared out of this space in about an hour. And I was briefly one of those people who would call up uh, office managers and try to sell them toner as if maybe I worked for Xerox, but didn't actually use those words. And uh, I I was pretty good at it. And then uh, it was soul crushing. And they offered to make me manager of the phone people. And that's when I went, I quit <laughs> because, oh no, if I'm becoming that good at this, I need to leave right now. And yeah. they took that the wrong way,
1: huh? <laughs> that's hard yeah. to believe.
2: Yeah. And then we use that's a version of that uh, in uh, an episode and- of Friends. It's all material.
0: On- We're trying to get. Personals off the ground. Right. Um, and, you know, luckily we had a producer who was behind it and a director. And, you know, we finally sort of pulled it together and made it. We, we brought in more composers to do more to it.
1: Personals opened in 1985. So that's like four or five years, though, that you're in New York. Um, yeah, no, we're knocking around. We did children's theater.
2: We uh, we wrote that's sketch right. material for off-Broadway reviews and songs, and it was almost stereotypically your uh, musical theater writers come to New York and try to make it go.
0: Children's Theater that we wrote was really fun for us to do. It didn't feel like it talked down, and and we really enjoyed the process and the casts that we got to work with.
1: Marta, did you have enough projects going on, things happening, to keep you going while you're doing the other day jobs? Or were there times of, do I have a plan B ready to go here?
0: I never thought about a plan B. I mean, I think one thing, you know, as much as it could be depressing and scary, it never occurred to me that I wouldn't end up doing something in this business.
2: I think we both were just like, it's the beauty of being in your 20s, that you're just like you're giving it. This is your shot. And there was enough happening that I don't think we were discussing. Do we need to give this up?
1: Did the success of the two shows in college translate into that opened a door or two in New York, or was it that's college stuff? You know, we're we're not going to pay attention to that.
0: Well, I mean, personal certainly did because it started in college and we ended up having it, you know, off Broadway. But in the meantime, we did things like wrote questions for a game show.
2: And so we we were we were struggling and just sort of hanging in there and and then an agent who was a sort of starting out agent came to see something we'd done. She met us and she said, Why aren't you guys doing TV? And it, the idea had never occurred. We were like, I don't know, because no one's ever asked us to do TV. That's like saying, you know, why aren't you a doctor? I right she said, I think you guys would be good at this. So we said, we, we did not want to move to LA. And even then, when even there was more TV happening in New York, we said, we're, we're not ready to move to LA. We're not ready to give up theater. So she said, okay, fine. And she at this point was based in New York. And she said, come up with 10 ideas for TV shows, and I will take you around to whatever companies there are, and you can try to sell them. So so knowing nothing, again, it's us just kind of throwing ourselves in. We came up with 10 ideas for TV shows, most of which, looking back, were probably not good shows, but uh, God bless her. She took us around and we started pitching them.
1: Marta, before we get to that, Personals opens in 1985 at the Manetta Lane Theater, and you got a show in New York. You mentioned a couple of those jobs along the way. Is there a final job that you had to do as you're creating this thing that eventually opens in 85, like that, where you were able to say, you know, I'm not coming into the pet store tomorrow?
0: You know, I the final job that I remember, honestly, is writing those game show questions. And before mm-hmm. that, I was working in a law firm.
2: We were at the same law firm. Marta was a reception. And it, and it went past personals. We were doing that well past personals, almost to like the late 80s, Marta was a receptionist and I uh, schlepped things. <laughs> <laughs> For the law firm. For the law firm, yes. They, I think they billed me as
1: a paralegal, which is uh, really generous and not fair to the people who were billed. So you guys are at the theater at night and then you're at the law firm during the day? Yeah. Yeah. And is that okay with you at that point? Or is there some notion of we shouldn't have to be doing this during the day.
0: Well, there was certainly the hope that we wouldn't have to do that for the rest of our lives. And we were fortunate that things started to change for us and we were able to stop doing that.
2: And that's the television thing. We started selling a few scripts, nothing that got produced, but we sold a few scripts. And
1: that gave us enough money that we could stop Slapping boxes and answering phones. When you were in doing personals, was there a feeling of we've done it? We've we've gotten a show. We have a show on in New York, or was it like a constant struggle? Were you able to enjoy it at all? Or is it still like a a, almost like a nightly struggle?
0: I was able to enjoy it. I'm not sure about you, David, but I was certainly able to enjoy just knowing that we had a piece of theater that people could come see. That was Pretty thrilling. And it was always, you know, that's your goal. Right. You want to put something on and people come to it and they clap and they laugh. But it's also excruciating. You know, you have to deal with reviews or houses that are particularly quiet one night or, uh, but honestly, it was, it felt like a true accomplishment, but it certainly did not feel like we're there.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Both happen at the same time. On one hand, yes, thrilled. And it feels like, oh, my God, we've arrived in that we've taken the next giant step. But as far as career security or that one thing will translate to something else. I mean, it's so random that Nancy, our agent, came and saw it and approached us. But yeah, you don't just because you have a thing doesn't mean you're going to get the next thing. I think we were we were thrilled and it in no way eliminated the anxiety.
0: Let me just say, just as a, a piece of history, um, Nancy, who the agent who came up to us that night personals is to this day still our agent.
1: That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So the woman who came to see the off-Broadway show Personals and would become Marta and David's agent suggested that they switch their focus to television and come up with 10 ideas for shows. Piece of cake, right? Not so much. It's just the two of us sitting there going, I don't know. I mean, we watch TV, but
2: it never (laughs) occurred to us to write TV. And there was such a crazy, I mean, everything from it's about this guy. That's it. That's one idea. The other all the way to a hotel in outer space, a sitcom about a hotel in outer space, which one of my favorite moments in television was pitching that to an executive who looked at the two of us and said, interesting, interesting. What if it's not in outer space? (laughs) And Martin and I are like, so it's a hotel. We said, well, it will
1: certainly huh. be surprising when the aliens arrive. Let's say that. Yes. Well, you were close. I mean, you had to either in outer space or not in outer space. Exactly. There's really, you could only go one of two ways.
0: We also developed a script based on David's parents called the Mr. Yeah. and Mrs. Show.
2: Yeah. My, my parents had, before I was born, had a live TV show in Philadelphia um, like a morning show with weather and guests and whatever. And so we thought, and and I still do, I believe that would actually
1: be a really good show. What was that like for them? But go sell a period piece. Do you inform them? Well, one of the ideas after the outer space idea, you know, <laughs> go go hard on the outer space idea. After that is, and hey, we might do a show about uh, you guys. Yeah, they were thrilled. They were fine. Uh, really? They, yeah, oh, please. Yes,
2: okay. I, yes, both parents not small egos. And they were like, sure, a show about me. Why not? Absolutely. But we never sold any of those shows. We never sold the Outer Space Hotel. We never sold the one about my parents. The first thing we sold finally was, was it the script that became Dream On?
0: No, it was that movie.
2: Was it? With the, the one about the USO tour? Oh, no, someone hired us to write. Yeah, there was this was part of the other mix of the 80s. Someone hired us to write a screenplay about this. This is the one about the political candidate.
0: Oh, no, I was thinking about the one. (laughs) See, this
2: is you should have done this about 25 years ago because we we are we have now become our grandparents going the one about the witch.
0: I <laughs> know oh, it was the. It must have been the USO tour one because it had that really funny egg scene.
1: I, do, I am. I am so. There was we a were... funny egg scene. We've <laughs> been going for 29 minutes now, and finally we've gotten to the funny egg. Funny scene, egg scene, which, which I, I know really was you were waiting for.
0: It was after that they had um, all these hours of television, and we're looking for writers. Oh
2: well, you're you're talking about when we finally, Yes
0: finally, yes. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So okay, I have no idea what the egg scene is.
0: How do you want your eggs? One. Do you remember this?
1: <laughs> vaguely, vaguely. I, I just have one question: Was the egg yeah. seen in outer space? Yeah,
2: <laughs> my head.
1: Because then you yeah. got
2: something. You yeah. yeah. As we're now, we're pushing into the late eighties, and we're 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 now trying to sell stuff in LA too. So we're going back and forth between New York and LA. And we're pitching things, and we actually did sell a few scripts, one of which has the egg scene, I think. We have a meeting where Nancy says, There's one more meeting before you fly back to New York. And it's at Universal Studios, and they have a big library of black and white footage that they don't know how to monetize. So we're in this meeting with some executives, and they show us like five minutes of these black and white film clips from like 50s TV, 60s TV. uh, And they say, What would you do with it? And we went, "Mm -hmm. I have absolutely no idea. Yeah. And and we found out later they had been showing this five minute footage to literally everyone. We were the bottom of the barrel. We are New York theater writers who happen to be out here and they're like, Let's see. And people have been pitching game shows and mystery science theater 3000 type things. And we're on the flight home and we're talking like, I don't know, what the hell can we do with it? And we came up with the idea. What if you did a sitcom where the clips are the guy's thought bubbles? And we thought, oh, it's a guy who grew up watching TV. So we land in New York. We're home. We call them up. And we say, oh, "Here's what we do with it," and they said, "Get back on the plane." So we get back on the plane and we pitch it to HBO, who was the, and we uh, to John Landis, uh, who apparently was attached to it, and that was the first significant script that we sold.
0: Just to to back up a hair, yes. when we first got to LA, um, we were very fortunate we were brought out by um Norman Lear but in one of our meetings before we moved out there we met with a bunch of agents at with Nancy and a bunch of the agents at her agency and they said here's what you have to do you have to get a job on somebody else's show get some experience and then you can write your own stuff i had a baby and david and i were like you know what we don't want to do it like that we want to do our own stuff we were we were so naive we didn't know that really um, that's not the way it's supposed to work.
1: Where do you think that comes from? That resolve to, okay, you're going to tell us this is how it's supposed to be, but we're not going to do it like that. Naivete
2: and <laughs> foolishness. Um, yeah. It's, again, uh, we don't know. We don't know what the rules
1: are. So we think we can reinvent them. I mean, it turned out we could, but- mm. Is there any part of it that's confidence also? Like you've created things that have been well-received on their level. Is confidence a part of that or is it? No
0: but do you know a single confident writer
1: <laughs> Good
0: point. yeah no i think if D- anything it's duly
2: noted it's yeah it's lack of knowledge and hubris if we'd known what we know now hmm. it, there's no way we would have we would have just like because we're also both big rule followers in general so i think we would've gone oh i guess we do need to follow the rules but we were we were naive and bold and just went No, we're going to come up with these shows and try to sell them ourselves rather than
1: working for someone else. And had you become better in the whole art of the pitch? Like, it seems like you were doing a lot of them by, I guess, the 10th one. I would imagine that you were better at it than the first or second one.
0: I have to say, David and I were really good pitchers. Um, we, we wrote a good pitch and we had a way of handing it off to each other that felt natural, you know, finishing each other's sentences. And, you know, there was kind of a flow to it. And I think we were really good pitchers. And I
2: think the other thing was that coming from theater where you're writing for yourself, you're not writing in a writer's room for other people. I think if we'd started out in television, that we would have thought, oh, we have to go through the, the journey the way you're supposed to go through it. But because we came out of theater where you, you, you write for yourself and you write what inspires you. And I think that's why we pushed back and said, no, let us try to do this ourselves. And there was also a reluctance to leave New York until at a certain point, the theater project we were working on didn't happen yet again. And Marta had had a baby. And we're now 30 and making uh, a ridiculously small amount of money to live on. And we went, all right, let's go to L.A. for
1: good. And that's when we got the job working for Norman Lear. Dream On was a terrific show. It tends to get lost in the shuffle because of what comes next, which kind of becomes a, a global colossus. And that's and that's fine. That's understandable. But Dream On was a really creative show. How important was it for you to prepare you for Four friends.
0: Well, it's where we learned how to run a show. We didn't know how to do it. We just, we didn't know, but it's where we learned how to do it, where we learned about production. I mean, we learned everything. Uh, we'd never run a room before. And here we have writers and we have to get a season done, and you have to get things done on a schedule. And we just, it was an incredible education. And at the same time, we were doing something that we really loved that we felt was different you know, hadn't been seen before. And it was really early in the HBO days.
2: We were their second comedy ever. Yeah. And the the first one being the O.J. Simpson comedy, first and 10, and then us. And so HBO was kind of new to the comedy business and we were new to the everything business because amazingly John Landis and Kevin Bright who was brought on to executive produce it, they let us run it, which is insane. Given, as Marta said, we never run anything. And
0: uh, we in a room.
2: Yeah, we we would. And we we knew a couple of TV writers who, who like through this Norman Lear development job. And we went, um, so how does it work? You hire people. And then and we saw them looking at us with daggers because we were doing what they all wanted to do. And we just gotten there. So Martin and I turned to each other afterward and went, all right, we can't ask anyone. We just have to fake it because they hate us. We can't, we can't ask anyone
1: how to do it. We just have to do it. So it's a learning process, it's an education. You're early on in LA. Marty, you said you had a young child at that point. That it sounds great in the aftermath, but while going through it, are you getting any sleep?
0: Well, I had a baby, so not really. <laughs> but you know what? It was. Such energizing work. I don't think I thought so much about the sleep as I did about, um, for me, balancing children and work. I don't remember a lot of sleep, David.
2: Sleep, no. But I would say when you you say it sounds great in the aftermath, it was great in the moment, too. We loved every minute of it. We had like a great cast and a, a small but amazing group of writers. And. We were given unlimited freedom. I mean, HBO gave us like four notes over the course of three years, and we just got to do the show we wanted to do. And we worked in this warehouse way, way out in like deep in the San Fernando Valley in North Hollywood. And it was so far out there that no one like executives did not want to have to schlep to visit us.
0: It was so far out there that there was a bar in the middle of our parking lot where people <laughs> come out, like knife fights and-
1: Oh, not like a chic bar, like a, oh, no. no. Oh, no, no, this was really
2: dangerous. Like there were murders around where we were shooting. We were just in our little bubble making this show and it was, it was the most fun ever.
0: We used to call it guerrilla television because it was very bare bones.
2: Kevin Bright, who was the executive producer, um, and John Landis, they just, they so supported the work that we were doing um, that that we got to just like make it up as we went along going, what would I want to watch? What would I want to see? So there was never that sort of network sensibility of you're trying to please this common denominator.
1: It was just what makes us laugh. And how does that lead to friends? And by the time you pitch friends, is there a notion of we're pretty seasoned veterans at pitching here? We know how to pitch a show.
0: I think we knew how to pitch a show. I don't think um you learn how to sell a show. That's just right. chance. And even
2: selling a show doesn't mean that you're going to succeed with a show. Cause in between Dream On and Friends, we right before we did Friends, we did a Show for CBS that was an out and out failure. It lasted for six episodes. We were canceled before we even finished the first order. So when we went in to pitch friends, we were coming from not from a place of confidence, but from, "Oh my God, they're going to throw us out. We'd better sell something right now to get back on the air." And we actually pitched two different shows and sold two shows. We got canceled in October and Pitching season ends somewhere around the end of November. So we had a month to come up with and sell something. And we ended up selling two things.
0: And before that, we did skip one chapter, which is we, for Norman Lear, had to develop something. So we had um, a show that we wrote called The Powers That Be. On that show, we were not asked to run it, because- and
2: which was fine because we had we had Dream On at the time, and in fact, we didn't even really want to do it because we had Dream On, but we had this deal with Norman Lear's company that we felt we had well, we didn't feel we had to fulfill. We were told we had to fulfill. So Mart and I pitched a show that we knew we that w- it would not sell. It First was totally of- the producers.
0: Yeah. We, we were told no politics. So, so it's a it show about a
2: politics. Senator. Yeah, it's a U.S. senator. And the characters around him are repellent. His wife, in the opening scene, she slaps the maid. I mean, all the things you're not
0: supposed to... His daughter, his daughter to do. is bulimic. She's married to a guy who was played by David Hyde Pierce, by the way, whose opening was he's standing on the chair using the drape cord to make a noose and he jumps off the chair and opens the grapes
2: we went they're never going to buy this it's incredibly dark the characters are unlikable and every step of the way it kept moving forward and it ultimately ended up norman got this amazing cast yes uh david hyde pierce holland taylor
1: john forsyth and it ends up running for two seasons (laughs) (laughs) go now the friend story obviously has been told once or twice or a few thousand times, and, and as well it should. Is there any part of your experience from Waiting for the Feeling and Personals that is in Friends?
0: Me and David. That's really, yeah. that's the through line. We found a way to work together that, where we just fit, and that was the constant through all of this.
2: And the other thing I'd say, going back to those days, the group of people who we met when we were doing that production of Godspell, who then did the plays at college with us, many of those people stayed close friends when we moved to New York. So during the 80s, we had a tight group of friends, many of whom had been with us from college, and that in many ways inspired friends which is about a tight group of friends in new york and the the one line pitch for friends is it's that time of your life when your friends are your family Mm -hmm. and they were and so that's also sort of the connection it's the two of us and that
1: tight group of people around us in the early years maybe the first season of friends are you too busy to appreciate what's going on or do you recall a moment or two where you can actually sit back and say something's going on here and it's way beyond what we could have dreamed of?
0: You know, there's a little bit of both. I remember the first rehearsal that we had the first time all six of them were on set together doing the scene, getting chills up my spine and thinking this is special. This is special. Um, but honestly, the first season, we're just trying to do a series that doesn't suck.
2: That um, that was literally what Mart and I, after each Friday night after a taping, as we were leaving the stage, we'd turn to each other and go, well, that's another one that doesn't suck. That's an old
1: uh, Stanislavski method expression, yeah, that, right?
2: That's yeah. what the bar was for us. Like, oh, dear God, just we were really we went into that kind of, again, panicky, much like Dream On, where we didn't know what we were doing. Suddenly with friends, we're. They're putting us on NBC Thursday night, must-see TV. We're on a night with Frasier and Seinfeld and Mad About You. And while, yes, we had done stuff, we hadn't done that much. We'd only moved to LA four years before. We made our first TV show like three years before. And suddenly, we're in the most major leagues there are. That first season, we were driven by panic. Of don't let us fail. But that said, I will go back to your question, which is, were we able to appreciate it? I don't think we were able to really see what was gonna happen, but the joy of the work with that cast and a group of writers, I think from day one, we were able to really
1: appreciate. We always appreciated how great the work experience was. You mentioned the drive during the first year. What's the drive as the years progress? You obviously have an established hit. Is it the notion of tough to get to the top of the the mountaintop and difficult to stay on on the mountaintop?
0: Some of the drive is just you don't want to f*** it up. Something good's happening, you just don't want to f*** it up. And then to a certain extent, the show kind of takes over. The show drives the train a little bit where it's telling you what needs to happen. There wasn't quite to dive into what the hell are we going to talk about you know in the next episode there was so much richness that had come before
1: it might seem like a ludicrous question considering how friends worked out and your careers then and since then but is there any aspect of those early years when you're in New York in the early 80s early mid 80s is there any aspect of that period that you miss oh sure
0: well, absolutely i i look back on to on those times very fondly. I it might even be said that I romanticized them. But, um, you know, part of it was we were such a tight group in New York and we had this built-in family. We were all on our own for the first time and trying to figure out who we were and what was love and what was work. It was an exciting time, and, and starting to define ourselves as writers. I look back on it
2: only. Yeah, I would say a lot of what you see when you watch Friends in terms of the love and the excitement and that sense of community that the characters have is something that we lived in much smaller apartments in New York in the 80s. It informed the show, but so sure, it's it's impossible not to look back to those struggling years and having real affection for them. I think if we didn't love those first years as much as we did, the show that grew out of them
1: wouldn't wouldn't be the same show. Marta Kaufman and David Crane, the co-creators of the TV show Friends, Their friendship started in college in the 1970s and continued in New York as they tried to make it big and leave the jobs filing papers in law offices and selling ink toner over the phone. All along, there was a desire to write something that would make each other laugh. It resulted in a show that's connected to people and made them laugh all over the world. Before the cheering started as a production of June 14th Productions, and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written and produced by me. Guitar playing? That's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the
0: journey.